From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broad Ignite podcast. Each month, we feature a researcher supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash broadignite. Broadignite, seeing the next generation of biomedical visionaries. As an oncologist, we'd see these patients every once in a while just that had these remarkable responses that were just amazing to behold clinically, and we really didn't understand why. I'm Ilan Mohari, your host for this episode. Today, we're talking with Ellie Van Allen, an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a clinician at Dana-Farber Partners Cancer Care, and an associate member at the Broad Institute. His team studies cancer patients with exceptional responses to immunotherapies, Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So how did you get into this line of work? You know, I wish I could say it was a straight line, um, but definitely not the case. You know, I went to college at Stanford in the late 90s, early 2000s. I studied something called symbolic systems. It's a mix of computer science with philosophy, psych, and linguistics. And, you know, everyone who does that really goes into tech. All my friends are, you know, in the Googles and the Facebooks and whatnot. And for me, it was really just sort of a happenstance. My my friends were actually looking to start a thing called Camp Kesem. It's a camp for kids who have or had a parent with cancer. And getting involved with that is really actually what channeled me into medicine and into cancer medicine specifically. The kids didn't have the cancer. Their parents did. And, and that was your first exposure to recognizing you could you wanted to do something about it. Exactly. And it was, it was genuinely like a, a life-changing experience for me. It was, you know, completely humanistic and sort of the, the raw emotions you would see with the kids, it, seeing how, how they, they would react to their parents getting sick, interacting with other kids who had, had parents who died of cancer. Uh, none of these were things that I had ever been exposed to. I, I'd Not only had I never been a counselor prior to this point, I don't think my parents ever sent me to camp uh, as a kid. So uh, for me, it was just completely mind-blowing. So you go back to Stanford and how do you transition from someone studying symbolic systems into someone who could sort of begin to do something about cancer. Yeah, so it, it, I obviously wanted to finish my degree and I really loved the quantitative parts of computer science and everything that I was studying at Stanford uh, and in essence just had to cram in all of the pre-med stuff just to make myself eligible for med school. Once you're in med school, you know, it's funny because so many people with your background, it was almost the, in the late 90s, it was when biology and computer science were beginning to merge. When did you first recognize that you actually had an ideal background to go into this kind of work? Yeah, and... and you know, just like before, I wish I could say that that was a straight line, but you know, I actually struggled to find my place in in this academic sort of interface uh, through most of med school, and it really wasn't until I did this rotation as a fourth year medical student out at, in New York, uh, out at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which when I had my aha moment. And um, what happened out there that made you made you realize? Yeah, so it's it's funny. They were opening up this brand new research building. Uh, they had invited a lot of speakers to to sort of mark the occasion. And one of the speakers for the as part of this event was Eric Lander from the Broad. And Eric presented on the notion of large-scale gene expression analysis, linking that to drugs and to using this for, for new discoveries in cancer patients, new new cancer drugs, and so on, making analogies to Google and, and algorithms. And I was sitting in the audience, I just said, oh, wait a minute, uh, this is something that I, I completely understand. Uh, and this is an aspect of medicine that really actually tickles my quantitative part of my brain. And this is what I can do. And, and that was really inspirational. I think it's really what actually pushed me uh, to proceed in this way. So how do you, you do, again, you have to go back to what you're previously studying and, and kind of tinker with it a little bit. How did you go from there to 
where you are today being a, a practicing oncologist. Yeah, so I wrapped up med school, went on to residency at UCSF up in San Francisco, um, and while there, actually teamed up with um, one of uh, one of the researchers there who was doing genome-wide association studies, in his case, in, in, in women with breast cancer. And that was sort of my first taste in all of this, but even my mentor at that time said, you know, if, if you want to learn how to do this um, and you want to be an oncologist, because that's, again, you know, what was driving me into medicine was really those experiences I, was having, I had with those kids and their parents, you know, way back when. Um, he said, you should probably go check out the program in Boston uh, and specifically look at the Broad as a place you might want to pursue some, some post, uh, postdoctoral research. And from there, how did you specialize with into um, exceptional responders? Yeah, so uh, you know, once... Once we really sort of hit the ground at the Broad and started to see what was happening in the genome sciences space, knowing what we would see clinically every once in a while, this sort of became a natural place to look into because, you know, as an, as an oncologist, we'd see these patients every once in a while just that had these remarkable responses that just were, were just amazing to behold clinically. And we really didn't understand why. Um, but using the technologies that were being developed at the Broad, we thought, you know, perhaps marrying those two approaches together could actually help us understand um, what's special about these patients, what's special about their cancers, and can we use this information to make discoveries that can make more patients exceptional. Can you paint a picture for the audience of just how rare it is to find an exceptional responder? Because we all read about them a lot when you're into sort of the biomedicine space, but but how rare really are they? Yeah, the, the honest realities is that they're, they're, you know, as defined, they're really rare. Uh, and I think especially in the world of immunotherapies that are arising now, these new drugs called immune checkpoint blockades, where there's a lot of um, really genuine excitement and appropriate excitement in the field for these drugs really changing, being game changers. Um, the reality is, is that most patients still don't respond to these drugs. And the ones that do, we're now seeing become resistant to the drugs that we were giving them. So even in these exceptional cases, you know, more often than not, the cancer comes roaring back. So these, these are just really outliers in the true sense of the word. your team recently published a paper in the journal Immunity about one of these exceptional responders. Tell us about how you encountered her and what was what was really exciting about her case. Yeah, so this was a patient with what's called a, a uterine leiomyosarcoma. It's a relatively rare form of cancer that arises from the uterus. Uh, and she presented with metastatic disease. So her cancer had already spread from the uterus to other parts of her body. Um, as it happened, sort of almost by chance, really, she was enrolled on a clinical trial of one of these new immune checkpoint blockades, a PD-1 inhibitor is what it's called. And uh, she had a remarkable response. Uh, almost every metastatic lesion in her body was shrinking down to the point of being undetectable. What was also remarkable was that there was actually one lesion in her body that continued to grow. So even though every other metastatic uh, spot was shrinking, one thing was growing. And because she was doing so well otherwise, the clinical team thought, you know, why don't we just cut that one thing out and we'll, in essence, make this person with no evidence of disease. So what was your team able to, to learn from this patient because she had presented you with basically a tumor that was resistant and then many tumors that responded quite well. Right. So in her case, we actually had an opportunity not only to, to understand, you know, what are the genetics behind this exceptional response, but also, you know, compare the tumor that responded with that one lesion that kept growing and look at what happened in the tumor that became resistant. Because understanding, understanding this could actually help us figure out what combinations of drugs we'd want to give to patients who don't respond to these therapies up front. 
So it's like you had a control on a variable. Exactly. And what did you learn when you once you compared the tumor that was resistant to the ones that were not? Yeah, so actually quite a few things, although the most sort of surprising to us and the sort of the clearest thing was when we compared the genetic profiles of the two tumors at the two different time points and we looked at all 20,000 genes and all of the mutations that you see in all of those genes, there was really only one striking difference between the resistant tumor and the pretreatment tumor. And that was a mutation in a gene called P10, P-T-E-N, uh, that was only present in the resistant tumor and not in the pretreatment tumor. And what's what's the ramification of of discovering that? So what was really exciting to us uh, when we saw that was that uh, at around the same time we made this discovery, there was a group in Texas that had actually seen the same mutations in this gene in, in a mouse model of cancers that become resistant to immunotherapy. And we were actually seeing it happen in humans. And what was really exciting is that there's actually a drug in development that goes after that specific kind of mutation. So this naturally paves the way for combination therapies of both the immunotherapy and this new drug to hopefully expand you know, what it means to be an exceptional responder from those, those unique outlier cases to perhaps more people. And meanwhile, you have this patient who's getting better. What's it like for you and your team to just observe. Here's a patient that's getting better. Because yeah. I mean, gosh, and it comes back to sort of like, this is what got me into this in the first place. It's those those raw emotions, the humanistic experience of of working with patients and their families who are, who are fighting cancer. Uh, it Because it happens so rarely that we see these kinds of events in patients with such advanced disease, um, it, it's, just a, it's just an emotional experience. It's like genuinely, it's impossible to put into words, but... Um, it really drives us to actually want to do this, obviously, for, for more patients. This is what we want for everyone. And, and, and being a part of that, it's just, a, it's just it's a gift. How did your Brodignite grant help you with this research? This is very simple. We literally couldn't have done this research without the Brodignite funding. Um, the project that we use this funds on is a very high-risk one, um, one that's almost certainly never going to get funded by a traditional uh, grant mechanism, and one that, you know, Surely would not be the risk would not be taken on a junior investigator like myself. Uh, so being able to use these funds for this kind of high risk research is the kind of thing that we need to be able to launch these larger studies. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This has been the Brodignite podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode and find out what one scientist has learned about how your gut microbes can vary depending on how your mother delivered you. The Brodignite podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger of Big Nice Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassone from the Broads Communications Department. And of course, a huge thank you to a fantastic community of Broad Ignite supporters. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash Broad Ignite.